Hey, I'm Steph. I'm Alex. And this is Not Today. Hey, how are you doing? I'm good. We're in a weird mood. Yeah, sure are. Yeah. How are you doing? Good. I'm a little tired, a little delirious. Yeah. I've had a flight delay today. That's true. I took off in a storm, That, yep. which was fun. Mm-hmm. But you know, we're here now and, and we're recording now. And you know what? It's a Bones Day, ladies and gentlemen. It is a Bones Day. Do we know what that means? Do we know about Noodle the Pug? I do. <laughs> because Please explain, though. All right. Listen, if, we are, if we're not on TikTok, feel free to skip forward 15 seconds. But TikTok is taking over my life. And there is a 13-year-old pug on TikTok named Noodle. And his owner will, every morning, see if Noodle stands in his bed or if he'll flop forward. And if he flops forward, that's no bones. And if he stands, that's Bones Day. And Bones Day is a good day. No bones equals relaxation day but it's a bones day ladies and gentlemen correct and uh, the guy who runs this channel or whatever yeah he is hilarious yes he is one of my favorite content producers uh, on the internet noodle has taken tiktok by the throat it is it's so awesome yes it's so funny um but today was a bones day it was and i believe the phrase that i've picked up from him is that Noodle's legs were firmly planted into his bed like the root of a tree. Yes. Strong and ready to take on the day or something like Good. that. It's, so it's, with, yeah. with that in mind, shall we trudge forward into part yes. two? Yeah, whiplash of uh, vibes here. That's okay. That's Let's okay. Jump in, no, start. but yeah, yeah, yeah. But I just wanted to say part two, everyone, is not going to be nearly as horrible as, as part one. So... We can Is we can that go even really saying something. Well, we can go forward with at least some sort of consolation. Consolation, some optimism. Some optimism. Perhaps. Yes. Okay. I don't Let's know if consolation in. was the right word. That's all right. It's late. We know what you meant. We got there. Okay, everyone, buckle up for part two. So, where did we leave off? Remind me. Let's remind everyone. So, Kay or Colleen's year out had abruptly ended. And that was after her trip home to visit her family because Cameron couldn't deal with the constant conflict between her and Janice. Do we remember? Yep. Yes. So Colleen went back into the box. For three years, correct? For three years, yeah. I'm just thinking about the fact that we were talking about Noodle the Pug and now we're back in the box. This is a lot. Okay, so, um, so Colleen was forced to slip back into her old routine. And that meant that she was spending all day in darkness only to be taken out of the box at night for an hour or two to eat the hooker's leftovers, empty her bedpan, and if she was lucky, she'd read her Bible for a while before being locked away again. The local memories of Kay Powers, which was her babysitter name, quickly disappeared, and if anyone in the neighborhood asked how Kay was doing, they'd simply say she was doing fine in Southern California. Meanwhile, she was spending the summer heat boiling beneath the bed of her captors. A true nightmare. And usually Colleen would passively endure being locked away, but on one occasion, she freaked out. Cameron had left for work, and Jan was in the hospital for another knee operation, meaning Colleen was alone in the house, and she knew it. So she used this opportunity to take out her frustration and started kicking and screaming at the box with everything that she had. And suddenly, the door broke out. Oh, shit, yes. 
to her astonishment, she had kicked the board that was bolted to the side of the box completely off. Once she realized what she had done, she just laid there for a moment in complete shock because she was absolutely terrified. I mean, how could you not be? You were, you've been in there for three... Well, I mean, she's been there for longer, but you've been in this box pretty much for three years. Oh, yeah. And your entire time you thought it was impossible to do. Right. Like, I would just be dumbfounded beyond yeah. belief. 100%. And she could have escaped. She could have climbed out of the box and run away. But in her mind, there was nowhere to go because the company was everywhere and she didn't want to risk dealing with them. Oh my god, I forgot. We forgot about the company, did we? The company is very real to Colleen. So not only that, but she knew that Cameron would be furious with what she had done, so she just laid there paralyzed with fear. She had hours before Cameron would be home from work, so all she had was time to think about what he might do to her for this. And she, she thought he might even kill her because of this. But when he got home, he asked her what she had done, and she gathered the courage and told him, and amazingly enough, he wasn't mad. He just repaired the box, and this time made it a little bit more secure. He was most likely just floored by the fact that she had that he had such mental control over her that he wasn't even mad because he didn't even need the physical restraint at this point. He just did it because he liked it. You know what I mean? So fucked up, but... Yeah. Ugh. Yeah, he, now he knows she's not going to run away. Exactly. Yeah. But, oh man, to know that she could have just gone to the next neighbor. Mm-hmm. I mean, she had plenty of opportunity to do that. This is not the first time she was alone, you know? Her visit her family. Right, yeah. After a while of Colleen being back in the box and Kay, the babysitter, being gone, taking Colleen out of the box to torture her became difficult with Cameron's two young daughters around. So he decided he needed to build a dungeon in the backyard because that's the just the logical next step, logical, right? Logical, sure. And of course, he'd have his slave help him. And they built in the backyard and worked on it on and off for months. And no neighbors were near enough to the property to really worry about them seeing, but even still, he had her work on it at night. They dug a little out each week, shoveling dirt into buckets, and they made it so big that Cameron had to rig up a pulley system to lift out buckets of dirt. And finally, they got the hole to be the size of a room, and they put in a floor and built walls. He borrowed a cement mixer from his father and even made bricks to construct the room with, and after a few months, they constructed a small but functioning dungeon in the backyard with a small window. And the window didn't look outside, but Cameron explained that the window would leave room for expansion, and one day they could dig an adjoining room beneath the other shed so he could bring in more slaves that she would teach, which left Colleen absolutely horrified. Oh my god. And it's really such a shame how evil this man was, because he was very handy, you know? Like, I'm just thinking about, like, constructing a... Like, uh, no, but think about it before you start laughing and spit out your drink. Think, okay. <laughs> think about the fact that he built a whole ass dungeon in his backyard, like, like cement bricks, everything like built walls. He's very, he could have done a lot of good, but he was just a complete piece of shit. Yeah. You know, what a shame. Yeah. I know. It's just, <laughs> it's a little funny to say right now. But yeah, I get it. Like, he could have built, like, so many great schools or hospitals or, or, or maybe anything. just Maybe he could have been, like, an inventor or something. You know? You know? Like, what, I mean, he constructed all of the boxes she stayed in, the head box. Like, 
every torture device that he made her endure, he constructed himself, you know? So, like, he's clearly talented, which is disappointing. To say the least. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway. (laughs) What? (laughs) But, like... She finished digging the second room for more slaves to come in. But think about all the good that he could have done. He could have built a library. Listen. Or somebody's shed. All right, maybe poorly timed. And not used it for a slave chamber, but he did. Okay, noted. Maybe poorly timed, but I was just thinking about it. Definitely poorly timed. Okay, I'll I'll do my best. I'm sorry, I don't... (laughs) I think you get it now. Yes. And... Actually, even though Cameron had Colleen and told Janice that this slave would take her, take away her physical hardships, he still hung up Janice and whipped her on a regular basis as well. And she hated the bondage and was absolutely terrified of her husband. But this twisted marriage was all she knew. And despite all that, she still loved him. Guilt was already growing inside Jan like a tumor, and once he started talking about expanding his collection of slaves, it seemed like a nightmarish possibility. Janice was terrified that these new slaves might even bear his children, and both Colleen and Jan believed that Cameron was capable of carrying out these plans. I mean, clearly he is. Right, yeah. Once the dungeon was finally finished, Colleen spent a lot of time down there. It had electricity and a ventilation system, but it was usually cold down there, so Cameron gave her some clothes to put on, like sweatpants and socks and things. Um, She had her Bible and even a cheap radio and a chair and her sleeping bag, which was definitely better than the box. Cameron was a bit worried leaving her down there, but he told her that if anyone found her, to just tell them that she wanted to be down there because it made her feel closer to God. Yeah, I would imagine that would probably deter anyone who found her. (laughs) right okay yeah uh this setup like i said was better than the box but it only went smoothly for about a week one afternoon jan brought something outside for colleen and didn't cover the hole back up when she went back inside to fetch something kathy who was now seven and dawn who was now five was having a play date with their six-year-old cousin denise hooker and they were playing in the backyard, and when Jan came back outside, they found Don and Denise in the shed looking into the hole. Jan quickly shooed them away, but she didn't know what the girls had seen. And Colleen had seen them, but she wasn't sure if they had seen her. So mm. it was kind of just a question mark. Um, so after that, they put Colleen back in the box since they were worried that Denise would say something to her parents about what the, what she had seen. And after a week of waiting to see if anything happened, they just put her back in the hole. But again, it was short-lived when the rains came and the hole started flooding. The water got all the way up to her shins and they tried to give her a bucket to get the water out, but it was just a losing battle. And Colleen had to be put back in the box once again. So this... This dungeon was very short-lived. This is another poorly timed comment, but I don't think he was that smart because you could have just used a water pump. I think they tried that. Oh, they did? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. It just wasn't working. Yeah. You know, not that we want him to have his dungeon, but also we don't want Colleen in the box. Yeah. So it's kind of a lose-lose. I don't know. It's like, do you want level seven or eight of hell? I don't know. Right, exactly. But now we're going to jump forward to 1984. Beginning in January, Colleen was granted small liberties again, and at first they were special, but then they'd become routine again. And now, at night, when she'd be let out of the box, she would be let out for several hours at a time. And after eating, she could now stay in the bathroom and read or write poetry or do crafts. She still had to call Cameron Sir, 
but now she could call Jan by her name. And actually, they started forming a bond. The Bible was definitely the root of their friendship, and at first it was their excuse to, t- to talk to each other, and it was kind of all they talked about for a while. But as time went on, they found that they had a lot more in common than they realized. They both dropped out of high school for quick marriages at a young age in Nevada. Both adored children, particularly Kathy and Dawn. Both were lonely, vulnerable, submissive women with terrible secrets and no friends to share them. And they were both deeply afraid of Cameron Hooker. So, at least they had each other. That's a lot in common. Yeah. But yeah, what a, what a fucked up situation to become friends under. Yeah. During this time, Cameron focused his attention on Jan and gave Colleen a little peace with the physical and sexual abuse. They also fed her frequent meals and her bony frame filled out from less than 100 pounds to a more respectable 115 or 120. And she didn't know this at the time, but the hookers were doing this on purpose because they had decided that after years of nearly continuous confinement, she was ready to be out of the box full time. Now she no longer slept in the box, but on a sleeping bag on the living room floor and was again the hooker's babysitter. So to everyone else, it was like, yay, Kay has returned from Southern California. So they literally took her around the neighborhood again and was like, look who's back. and just like paraded her around as if she wasn't under their bed for three years. Oh my god, I can't imagine how surreal that experience was. I, yeah, I couldn't even like, possibly is this imagine. Real? Mm-hmm. And they had to do this because Cameron had decided that it was time for Colleen to get a job. What the fuck? Yep. Okay. He told her that he was sticking his neck out with the company by letting her do this, and all the money she makes will be saved, and when there's enough, he'll buy her a little trailer that she can live in. So, in May of 1984, exactly seven years after Colleen's 1977 abduction, she started her job search. Jan drove her around to well over a dozen businesses so she could fill out applications, but they came to the conclusion that motels seemed like a good place to try. So Colleen walked into King's Lodge Motel, and the manager, Doris Myron, hired her on the spot. Colleen was eager to work, which impressed Doris, and she started her job as a motel maid the next morning. She quickly settled into her new routine of getting up very early, weeding, planting, hoeing, and watering the vegetable garden, which the neighbors noticed and thought it was kind of strange, but then she would wash up and get ready for work. And sometimes Jan would drive her to work, but most times Colleen would ride Jan's bike three and a half miles into town and get to the lodge. She worked so hard that she quickly earned the title of Mrs. Myron's goody-goody golden girl. And she was also quickly promoted from maid to working at the front desk because Mrs. Myron felt like she could trust her. Because, you know, she's had seven years of being a slave, so she's really good at doing what she's told, you know? Yeah, no shit. And also she's... I'm sure, just ecstatic. To be anywhere but the box? literally anywhere but their home. Right. And Doris would come into the office from time to time and talk to Colleen about her situation at home. And at first, she told Doris that Jan was her sister, but then that quickly changed to Jan was her very good friend, but were like sisters. And she told her about the crochet and macrame things that she made, so Mrs. Myron bought three of them. Doris thought that the hookers were taking advantage of Kay because she told them, or she told her that she gave all of her checks to Jan and Cameron to pay for her room and board, and they gave her an allowance of $20, which didn't seem right to Mrs. Myron, but I'm sure to Colleen, she was like, 
just telling her like matter of factly because it was just so normal to her at that point you know she's like oh yeah they just give me twenty dollars a week and or a month i guess i don't know but either way yeah clearly slave wages yeah but mrs myron was like huh how old is she at this point she was 19 when she was abducted and now it's seven years later she's 26 yes wow and that that was just normal to her Mm mm-hmm that's insanity it's all she knew I know, but, like, please tell me this is the detail that sets her free. We're getting there. One of the maids, Lenora, offered Kay a ride home when it was raining since she rode her bike that day, and Colleen didn't really see a problem with that since no one was home, and she invited her new friend into her house. So that was kind of something. And they chatted for a while before Kay... Uh, kind of let it slip that she slept in a sleeping bag on the floor and said, all of my worldly possessions are in that pack. And she pointed to a backpack on the floor, which was definitely weird to Lenora, but she wasn't going to push. And it wasn't long before Jan and Cameron came home and Cameron sat on the couch and just stared at Lenora, which made her extremely uncomfortable. And she was like, okay, bye. See you at work, Kay. Like, she was like, gotta go. Yeah. (laughs) See you later. In early June, Cameron Hooker finally made a serious mistake. So this is the beginning of the end, friends. Thank the fucking Lord. We're not quite there, but it's the beginning of the end. Colleen asked permission to go to church, and he agreed. The first week, Colleen rode the bus with the children to church, and by the next week, Jan went with them. And they would do this pretty much every single week, and it was just Colleen and Jan, and I guess sometimes the children, and never really Cameron. And to Cameron, he was like, you know, at least Kay and Jan are getting along now. But had he known what would have happened because of this, I'm sure he never would have agreed. But it was also around this time that Cameron announced that with Kay out of the box, he ought to be able to sleep with her openly, quote, like biblical times. And Jan was never okay with him doing this, but that didn't stop him. He told her that it'll make it easier on yourself if you just accept Kay as my slave wife because I'm going to sleep with her whether you like it or not. Like biblical times. Like, never mind the seventh commandment about adultery, but, you know, (laughs) and, like, the whole stoning of adulterers, but, you know, like biblical times. Sure. Makes sense. Yeah. I'm not hipping with it with my with my Bible commandments, but... Yeah, I went to Catholic school, so. <laughs> Yeah, but uh, he also made them have threesomes with him. Jesus. So, yeah. Jan wrestled with this because she wanted to do what was right, and she knew that the Bible said that she should follow her husband's commands, but Cameron having two wives also felt wrong, so she prayed. And Janice and Colleen's relationship only grew during this time because they were in this together. And when Jan came down with a bad case of the flu, it was Colleen that took care of her and not Cameron. As time went on, Janice's anxiety ate away at her because for years she was able to push down the fact that she felt like she was living a nightmare. But now she had realized that Colleen had become her closest friend and she knew that everything about the company was a lie but they had fallen into such a routine. Cameron continued working. Their live-in babysitter rode her bike to work and worked on their flourishing vegetable garden. Their two girls, now six and eight, played and laughed in the yard, but Janice was losing her mind. And now Cameron was using the Bible against her. She was also so afraid that if she stood up to him that he would kill her. And not only that, but the looming threat of him getting more slaves became more and more real. 
But what could she do? She couldn't go to the police because surely they'd take her daughters away from her, which was her absolute nightmare. Yeah, I don't know. There's not much out of... I mean, for her to abdicate responsibility is a tough sell. Mm -hmm. Although, I mean, she was, you know, abused herself for sure. Yeah. I don't know what the laws are, but... Yeah, I, I understand, but clearly not not the right path. Yeah, it's it's a little it's a little complicated. Um, I don't she, know, but I feel like if she brings him in, though, they're gonna give you some leeway. Possibly, but she, you know, she didn't really know what to do at this point. She True. felt like she was completely stuck with her options, and she wanted to leave, but she couldn't support her two children alone. And at one point, Janice confided in Colleen that she was thinking of leaving, but Colleen didn't want Jan to leave because then she'd be alone with Cameron. And she told Jan, we can't leave because they'll find us and they'll torture us, meaning the company, which again was like a knife in Jan's stomach because she knew that the company was a lie, but she didn't say anything. Why? Because it's the whole crux of the issue. Yeah. By the end of July, Jan's mental health had gotten so bad that she asked Cameron to kill her. Cameron did strangle her, and she passed out, but he didn't kill her because he didn't want to, you know? He had a pretty sweet setup. Very selfish man. But if that's not the breaking point, I don't know what is, you know? That wasn't it? No, I said if that's not a breaking point, then I don't know what is. The month of August broke, and Jan needed answers. And by chance, at church, she met a couple who she felt that she could talk to. And not completely openly, of course, but she asked them hypothetical questions about what was about right and wrong and how a husband ought to treat his wife. So she left that conversation with a new perspective and she marched her ass straight into Pastor Dabney's office, which was her pastor, and she started asking him slightly more telling questions. She talked about more of a love triangle going on in her home rather than one of sexual slavery. And he told her that they were living in sin and she needed to do something about that. So the day has finally come. August 9th, 1984. Jan arrived at King's Lodge at 11.30 a.m. and asked Mrs. Myron if she could speak with Kay. Finally, she gathered the courage to tell Colleen, quote, Cameron lied to you about everything, the company, the slavery contract, all that he told you about me being a slave, all of that was just lies. He lied to scare you, to make you stay his slave. Colleen was in complete shock. How do you not dissociate? I don't know. She cried tears of disbelief, bitterness, rage. I, I mean, I just can't even imagine what must have been going through her head at that moment. But the two women knew that they needed to get away from Cameron and escape together, but they had no idea what they would do. So they decided they would ask the advice of Pastor Dabney. When Colleen walked back into the motel office and told Doris that she needed to quit, Doris noticed that she looked very distressed, but didn't have any idea what was going on, so she said that she was sorry to see Kay leave, but she asked if she could finish her day's work first. So she did. I, like, could you imagine finding out that your entire existence is a lie, and then your boss is like, can you just finish your day of work? And you're like, okay. Yeah. Oh my god. And she has no idea. Well, she's just so conditioned to, like, do what she's told. It's it's sad, really. Like, it's not funny. It's not funny, but it's Uh, just like, what? (laughs) Well, I... It's it's not funny, but I mean, I just can't even imagine being in this state of mind and then being like, oh, you want to go to room three? Like, how long are you staying? Right. 
you guys have a good time. Right. Like, what the fuck? Mm-hmm. Talk about like putting on a customer service face. Oh. Like Jesus Christ. Yeah. So they set up an appointment with the pastor that afternoon, which was after her shift. And so that she had to work for another two hours. Not the longest, but also like two hours. An eternity, like in sure. eternity. So two hours later, Jan came back and Colleen told Doris to hold her last check until she gave her a new address and to not give it to Cameron Hooker. And when they arrived at the church, the pastor had a hard time understanding the two of them because they were kind of just like going crazy, understandably. But after explanation, he learned that Kay had been held against her will and the two had been subjected to strange sexual practices and the both were terrified of Cameron Hooker. He told them to pack up and leave immediately and stay with parents. But it wasn't that simple because Jan was supposed to pick up Cameron from work soon. So if she didn't, he would know that something was going on. So the pastor suggested that they pick him up from work as usual, pretend nothing had happened, and then spend the night. And then the next day after he left for work, pack up and leave. So that's what they decided they had to do. Oh my god. I mean, yeah, it's it's logical, right? Because then he's not going to do anything. I could imagine how, most, how terrifying that must be. Once he leaves to work, you have a number of hours before he realizes. But Right. Oh my god, what? what? Like that night? The fear. Oof. Oh my god. And to like act like everything's okay. And for Colleen, like, I mean, at least Jan like knew it was a lie all along. But yeah. for Colleen? Really? Oh really. my god. <laughs> I can't even imagine how one acts... No. And Colleen wasn't even terrified for like what she would do. She was scared that Jan might confess to Cameron for what she had done. Because, you know, Jan's a little, she's a little flaky sometimes or, you know, you know what Mm -hmm. I mean. But there wasn't anything she could do about it now. So they just picked him up as usual. I bet that car ride was quite awkward. Uh, Maybe that's an understatement. What did they talk about? Uh, Probably nothing. Like, honestly... In, in, like in this fucked up situation, what do you do? You talk about the weather. I'm kind like, of I hoping don't nothing. <laughs> like, yeah, probably. But like, what goes on? What is said? I don't know. But they had to act very normal, you know, as normal as they could. I mean, that night Jan slept on the floor with Colleen, and she told Cameron that it was just because she wasn't feeling very well. So that worked at least. But the next morning he left for work at 5 a.m. And as soon as he was out of the door, Jan and Kay started packing. And as soon as they were finished, the two packed up Kathy and Don for Bible school and fled to Jan's parents' home in the nearby town of Gerber. Oh, they picked up the girls from Bible school. They didn't pack them for Bible school. Yeah, it's like they're leaving the kids. No, no, no. Okay. They, they, picked them up for Bi- they picked them up from Bible school and took them with them to Gerber. So Colleen and Jan discussed what to do next and even tossed around the idea of staying together and making a good home for the girls. Colleen considered this because she did love the kids and she knew that Jan was so dependent that she couldn't picture Jan taking care of the children on her own, but she decided that she needed to call her father and she needed to get the fuck out of there. So good call. Yeah. So she told, she called her father and she told him what she could over the phone and asked him to wire her $100 for bus fare. And her father was so eager to do anything to get her home that he said, are you sure $100 is, an, is enough? I, I can send you more. Dude, I'll send 100 k right now. What the <laughs> right. fuck? But Colleen assured him that 100 was plenty. So the next morning, she had her ticket in her hand and she was about to board the bus home. But before she did, she called Cameron. She wanted to tell him that she was free. She said, I want to tell you that I'm leaving. 
that I know you lied about everything and you can't keep me here anymore. And she doesn't rem remember all that Cameron said, but she does remember that he cried. Bitch. So. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> you beat me to it. Good. Surprisingly to Jan, even though she was only a few miles away, Cameron didn't threaten her or didn't come after her with a gun. Instead, he swore up and down that he'd change if she just came home. And Jan wasn't very forthcoming with her parents about the real reason that she left Cameron, so they told her to forgive him and give her marriage another try. So after a week, she and the girls moved back home. Oh, Jan. Yep. Oh, I can't even imagine after the fact when those parents find out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Cameron started going to church with Jan because now he's playing nice, you know? And they had counseling with Pastor Dabney. He was very convincing because even Pastor Dabney, with everything he knew, said that Cameron came across as mild and likable, and he advised him to be true to his wife and get rid of his sexual paraphernalia, and Cameron said that he would. How much does this pastor know? Does he know about the sexual abuse, or... He knew know. enough to be like, you need to get the fuck out of there. Yeah, so that's where I'm at. Right. Like, okay. I don't know. What's going on right. here? I'm kind, of, I'm kind of confused about how much he knew as well. But yeah, even even the pastor at that point was like, yeah, he's mild and likable. It's like, oh yeah. Interesting. You know, he just he's a psycho. Keeps, a, keeps slaves and sexually and... You know, he's just a normal guy. He can he can he's turn mild. it around. Yeah, he's yeah. a mild-mannered, nice guy. Uh, meanwhile, Colleen had rejoined her family in Riverside, thankfully. This time, her family demanded to know why she hadn't written over the years that she was gone. And over breakfast, she had to begin to unravel the story of everything she had suffered. So I can't even imagine that conversation or how her family wrapped their heads around that one. But, How could you? you know, she had to tell them, so she did. Did you imagine? Pass the butter. What? Yeah, that's a lot. Um, outwardly, she approached her new freedom with a real clear-headedness, surprisingly. She moved in with her father almost immediately, and she wanted to find work and land a job as a housekeeper in a hospital. She even considered taking a civil service exam, but she really struggled with regaining her identity as Colleen Stan since she had spent the last seven year years as Kay Powers. It was also difficult for her to get away from Cameron's influence, and she even spoke to him on the phone on a few occasions. Once while Jan was away, he called her to ask how to make a tuna sandwich. So even he was a little bit dependent on her, which is kind of strange. What? Yeah. He can build a slave dungeon. But not a tuna sandwich. But not a tuna sandwich. Yeah, apparently. Uh, maybe it was an excuse, but Colleen... I mean, yeah, but like, what the fuck? Yeah, Colleen had a couple phone conversations with Jen and Cameron over the next few weeks, and she gave the hookers her word that she wouldn't go to the police. Jan told Colleen she believed Cameron was earnest about trying to change, and they, quote, owe him that chance. No, you don't. Eat shit and die. Yes, <laughs> like, there you go. What? Yeah, so, I don't know. You remember the three years I spent in a box? Three? Try seven. Well, I know. Straight. Yeah, yeah right. And contiguously. Mm -hmm. So Jan's a little messed up in the head, clearly. But Colleen agreed, because Colleen's also messed up from everything that right. she endured. of course. Colleen also sent letters, and they made little reference to her captivities, and instead talked about her new life at home and sent love to those up in Red Bluff. 
so shit was complicated, to say the least. Colleen's family, however, wanted her to go to, the, go to the police and on a few occasions even called the hookers themselves to give them a, a piece of their mind. Oh my god, if I was this father, I would have murdered this man already. Yeah. Straight up. Yeah. They wanted her to go to the police, but she said she just wanted to move on. One night in September, Jan woke up suddenly and sensed that Cameron was wide awake next to her. And she could sense how tense he was, and that really scared her. So she asked him what was the matter, but he just said, I don't know. And so she suggested that they get up and burn everything in an attempt to kind of distract him. She said, we should just burn the pornography, the bondage equipment, everything. And, you know, I'm sure she was just terrified in that moment that he might literally kill her. So she just said anything to get him to let off some steam, I guess, and it worked. But they burnt a lot of evidence. So that's problematic. I guess it saved her life, potentially? Yeah. Yeah. But Cameron's attempt at changing didn't last very long, unsurprisingly. Yeah. And he went back to abusing Jan. And she went back to her sudden panic attacks and fear that he'd kidnap someone else. And so she finally took her daughters and left for good. After driving up to Reading for a doctor's appointment, she struck up a conversation with the receptionist, Connie Fleming, after her appointment. And they talked for about two hours. And after that, Connie realized that Jan really needed someone to talk to. And so after this long conversation, they set up another meeting for next week when the doctor would have, would have been out of the office. So when the next meeting with Connie came on November 7th, and after a while of talking, Jan gradually let out the truth about her husband and how he was evil. She even told Connie that he kidnapped Colleen Stan and he kept her locked up for seven years. Connie asked Jan why she never did anything, and she told her she did, she let her go. Connie realized that this was way above her pay grade at this point, uh, and was like, you need to go to the police. But Jan, but Jan was like, I'm terrified to do that, because if they lock me up, then they'll take my children. And Connie said something that finally struck a chord with Jan. She said, you should turn him in because he might do something to your daughters. Yeah. So that's what finally got Jan to like kind of have the light bulb moment. She suggested Jan talk to Pastor Dabney again, who thankfully had just returned from a long vacation. So Janice set up a conversation with him literally that afternoon, and she told him everything completely truthfully. And with Janice's permission, Pastor Dabney picked up the phone and called the county sheriff's office. So finally, the police are called. I'm punked. However. What? I don't know. I feel like we've had enough police bungles <laughs> to where I'm not terribly... I, I'm a, a cautious optimism here. Okay, well. But fuck yes, she finally got over all that to make the necessary... Steps? To, yes. Yeah, to make the right call. Yes. Yeah. Literally. Jesus. Uh, it was... After five, by the time Detective Al Shamblin and Sheriff Mike Blanusa arrived at the church to find Janice Hooker completely distraught. Not only did Janice tell them about the 1977 kidnapping of Colleen Stan and the horrors that followed, but she also informed the police that in late January of 1976, so before that, he had picked up a girl named Marlise Spanhake in the nearby town of Chico, and that night Cameron had murdered her. Once the detective clarified that Jan had been with Cameron at the time of the abductions, he read her her rights, 
And finally, she completely freaked out and was like, I need to see an attorney, which put an end to the the questioning. And she was on the brink of an emotional collapse at that point. Her mental state was so bad that Shamblin and Dabney were worried about leaving her alone and discussed sending her to a mental health unit. And she told them that she had a counselor and she was able to calm down after speaking on the phone with her. So there's a lot of tea happening in this moment. Tea, yes. (laughs) Uh, When they looked up Cameron Hooker, his rap sheet was completely clean other than just a few traffic violations. However, they also found that an 18-year-old named Marie Elizabeth Spanhank nicknamed Marlies, had in fact disappeared in Chico of December of 1976. They knew that investigating these cases without Janice's complete cooperation would be extremely difficult, so they went to the DA's office and got immunity for Janice Hooker in exchange for her communication, for her cooperation. cooperation. Right, yeah. No, I was like, I I had a feeling that this type of situation was going to happen. Yeah. Because she's the only way he goes down. Exactly. And they knew it immediately. So they're like, okay, immunity. The next day, she was told that she was granted immunity and needed to give her full statement. And so she agreed. And she told them they picked up Marlies and Chico as she walked alone down the road. She had had an argument with her boyfriend at like a market and was, she's like, I'm going to walk home instead. And then they picked her up, which really sucks. Oh my God. I know. It's so tragic. But like Colleen, they drove her down a dirt road, tied her up, shut her head inside the head box, and before going home, stopped at Jolly Cone, which was a fast food place. And when it became dark, they drove her to their home at 1140 Oak Street. He took her into the basement and did the same thing that he did to Colleen, although this time he cut her vocal cords with a knife to keep her from screaming. Dizzy and weak from the blood loss, she wrote on some paper that she'd call her boyfriend to get money for her release, but Cameron refused. That night, Cameron shot Marlies several times in the stomach with a pellet gun, and finally he strangled her to death. At about 2 a.m., Cameron wrapped her body in a blanket and forced Janice to help him load it into the car, and they drove into the mountains and dug a shallow grave and buried her. The only thing that he kept from that was her small gold watch, which he, at some point, lost on a conveyor belt at work but that's, that was that. And next, Jan told the detectives all about Colleen's story. It was an exhausting interview, covering nearly a decade. But finally, Shamblin sent Janice back home to her parents. Their next step was to interview Colleen. She answered their questions in almost a whispery voice, but she told them all about what Janice had, you know, explained the day before. And the officers found it strange that, in contrast to Jan's interview, Colleen's response was very matter-of-fact and just detached, and she didn't cry, not once. And when they asked her why she hadn't gone to to the police, she simply said, Jan told me not to. She also told them, I'm not doing this for revenge, but only because I don't want it to happen to anyone else. So this was going to be extremely difficult. Although Jan had told them about this murder, nine years had passed since then. And a co-worker had told the police that she remembered Hooker wearing a woman's watch to work, but they also didn't have a body. So even if it was true, they couldn't convict him for it, you know, without the body. And he wasn't even arrested at this point. Right, yeah. Does he even know? Not at first, no. Once, you know. Yeah, I mean, once he does, he does. But Yeah. So they need to go find that body. 
Well, they don't, unfortunately. They don't? No. But, you but know... But she helped him bury her. Yeah, right? they, they couldn't find her body, unfortunately. Oh. Yeah. But um, once Cameron was arrested and the news broke, everyone had something to say about it. On November 19th, 1984, the day after Hooker's arrest, police chief John Faulkner released the first scraps of information to the press. Hooker had been booked for kidnapping, rape, sodomy, and assorted other charges. That's what he told them. But by the next day, more details had emerged, and a picture of Cameron Hooker, along with the front page article titled, Police Sex Victim Held Seven Years, was released. And local people couldn't believe it. Neighbors talked about Kay taking the Hooker girls for walks, riding past you know, on her bike, jogging. She seemed sweet and friendly and apparently free to come and go as she pleased and everything just seemed completely normal. No one had any idea. Cameron's family also talked about how rarely he ever brought up sex and was generally mild and quiet and good-humored. The hookers found it impossible to believe that Kay was kept against her will. You know, she'd come over a number of times and they'd seen no evidence that she was kept by force. She had no bruises, no scars, nothing to suggest she was anything but the babysitter. The rumor even began to spread that Jan and this other woman were in cahoots together. Okay. So that's what this is turning into. Take that rumor and shove it. it. (laughs) Yeah. That's when Roland Papendick came into the picture. That would be Cameron Hooker's defense attorney. How do you be this person? That's what I want to know. How do you be this person? Mm-hmm. He had the reputation of someone who you'd want on your side if you needed this kind of defense. So, not the best kind of guy. So, kind of an asshole. Yeah, kind of. Allegedly. Pa- Allegedly, exactly. Papendick started by talking to Jan, who at this point was riddled with guilt for turning in Cameron, but insisted that Colleen had never been raped. So Papendick was pretty confident going in that he could, quote, destroy Colleen's story, which is just disgusting. How do you, how do you go home and be like, you know what? I love my job. Like, yeah. What? Mm -hmm. Like, oh, I'm going to. How do you sleep at night? How do you do that? I don't know. Even though when Papendick met Cameron, he asked how he... I'm sorry, it is too on the nose that his last name is Papendick. I know, I thought you would, I thought you might say that. (laughs) I I held it in earlier, but this is too much. You held it in for quite some time. Yeah, this is too much. (laughs) You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Continue, I'm sorry to cut you off. That's okay. Even though uh, when Papendick met Cameron, he asked how he met Colleen... And without hesitation, Cameron said, I kidnapped her. So not even... So he fully, he knows. Right, exactly. The prosecution was the only woman lawyer in the in a county extremely redneck. So she was already extremely tough. Christine McGuire, who actually co-wrote Perfect Victim, which is where I got all of this information. Very good book. Highly recommend. She was only 28 at the time. And because she was a woman, many of her peers thought that she'd been employed for reasons other than her professional skills, which only made her work that much harder, which is disgusting. But I mean, it was the 80s, so, you know. I get it, but... No, it's gross. (laughs) Like, it's disgusting. But it only made her work that much harder, you know? She, She works hard. 
Maguire's first impression of Colleen was similar to everyone else's, that she didn't seem very slave-like or much like a victim, which worried her because she knew that juries tend to judge people people's outward appearances, and so far, this wasn't helping their case. Also, Papendick was going to try and portray Colleen as, quote, the other woman, and unfortunately, she kind of looked the part. Although she was a year older than Janice, she looked much younger and was more attractive. So that didn't help. Oh, God. They wanted to paint Janice as the jealous wife who made up the story to get back at her cheating husband and get Colleen out of the picture. So that was their kind of story. That's what we're going with here. Yeah. It was also unbelievable because Colleen had held down a full-time job, was going to church, meeting new people, she cleaned, she had a seemingly normal life, so who'd think that she was a victim in all of this? First, they had to go through the preliminary hearing to see if they'd even take the case to court. And during this hearing, Papendick got Jan to admit that she was on medication that made it so she wasn't able to think clearly. And she also admitted that she lied to Cameron about being pregnant at the beginning of their relationship, which made her out to be a liar. Janice continued to be- I'm sorry. And we're just gonna kind of walk past all the lies that he spewed, particularly the company. Right. I don't know. I'm sorry, but like no, this is... you're right. I mean, but at, at this point, like where we are in the case, it's kind of just he said, she said. Yeah, this, I know, but this case is going to be such a shit show. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. That's why we did two parts. Yeah. <laughs> but um, Janice continued to be an issue throughout the case because she'd say things about Colleen that weren't true. And then she'd tell the court she was just mistaken. You know, when Colleen was like, hey, that's not true. She's like, oh, that maybe I was wrong. Sorry. So they were like, um, Janice. Can we believe anything you say? What? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, it just made it so Papendick could further paint her as the jealous wife desperate to get Colleen Stan out of the house away from her husband. Another huge issue the prosecution had to deal with was the fact that Colleen had told Cameron that she loved him on a few different occasions and in some letters. And we'll talk about that later, but that is something that was an issue. But thankfully, in this preliminary hearing, Colleen was able to recount the events of everything that happened to her in detail. So Judge Murray ruled that Cameron Hooker would have to face the charges against him, and if the charges were true, he would certainly be a danger to the community and maintained a bail of half a million dollars, so they would be going to trial. So now they had to prepare for court, and it would be a long and painstaking process. And what sucked about this court case is that although Cameron Hooker was the one who was officially on trial, it really seemed like Colleen was the one who was being picked apart and who was actually on trial. But although Janice and Cameron had burned a shit ton of evidence months before, they still had the head box, the box underneath the bed, they found the slavery contract, they also had multiple photographs of Janice being tortured, and later actually found photos of Colleen being tortured. And Janice had thought that they had destroyed all of the photos of Colleen, but they missed a few, fortunately. It showed Colleen hung by her wrists in her slave collar, which was huge. And this was the first piece of evidence against Hooker. But McGuire didn't want the jury to leave anything to the imagination, so she had them literally try out the head box and the box themselves. Like, put it on the jury? Yep. 
Oh, wow. They, She's awesome. Yeah. They like, tr- Yeah. What? I was going to say, like, how do you... I don't, is that legal? I didn't know yeah. that was part of, like... Well, she, she, didn't, she didn't force them. I know, but I didn't know that, that, that you could, I don't know, use evidence in that way. I mean, it's extremely compelling. Yeah. They tried it out to see if it would actually be possible to keep someone in the box. And after a few jurors did, and, you know, a bunch of them different sizes, they kind of laughed as they tried it out because I'm sure it was nervous laughter. But it was determined that it was, in fact, possible to keep someone in the box. And it was no joke. A few of them also tried the head box on and the same thing. McGuire was also able to get Hooker to admit to kidnapping Colleen. So the devil works hard, but Christine McGuire works harder. So here's here's how it goes down, all right? Fucking amen. So he, this is how it happened. So there was no body ever found in the disappearance of Marlise Spanhake. But Christine McGuire was kind of able to get the case kind of reopened because Janice said that Cameron had shot BBs at Marlies's stomach, and in the basement of 1140 Oak Street, they found BB pellets. And although they couldn't trace them back to a specific gun or, you know, any DNA on them or anything, it was enough evidence to say, hey, we can kind of reopen this case. So she filed a motion to say, Cameron Hooker needs to be put on trial for this whole separate other case. And she was like, you won't have to do that if you confess to kidnapping Colleen Stan. And so he was like, I confess to kidnapping Colleen Stan. No way. Yep. Wow. So she's, she's the shit. Exactly. So this whole Marlies thing was never really like he he's not convicted for it because again no body they he they kind of used it to get him to con- to confess to confess, but isn't that kind of genius genius and like badass like yeah. what the hell? So that's how that happened. But even though she got that to happen, there are still a bunch of issues that they had to face in court. So the statute of limitations was an issue because for kidnap the statute of limitations is only three years and colleen's what yeah right and colleen's in california i guess at that time at least like colleen's kidnap happened in 1977 okay and now we're in 1984 so mcguire had to prove that the kidnapping was continuous which would be the only way to invalidate that argument moving forward to colleen's year out Okay. Like I mentioned earlier, there were a few occasions that Colleen did tell Cameron that she loved him, and I'll get more into that later, but Colleen's you're out. To someone who doesn't know the extent of what happened, it looks like Colleen was let out of the box and given freedoms to go on runs on her own or being left alone at home, get a job, and she just chose to stay. We know that wasn't the case, but that was going to be very difficult to prove. And the fact that Colleen was even able to visit her family definitely didn't help her case. That, coupled with the fact that she seemed well-adjusted and semi-normal, made the case increasingly complex. Meanwhile, the media was asking the question, was Janice Hooker just the jealous wife? Was Colleen Stan the other woman? Is Cameron Hooker just someone who's very kinky? But we know that all of those are not the case. Like, Yeah, uh, it sounds like lines that Pap and Dick is leaking to them. Right, exactly. 
But the most pressing issue at hand was Colleen telling Cameron that she loved him. She did confess that she told Cameron she loved him on a few occasions. She said it was probably in 80 or 81 during her year out. And she said she was glad to be out of the box and that he gave her certain freedoms. She felt like he had given her a life back and she was also completely dependent on him. But Pappendick ran with this and he talked about all the freedoms Colleen had during her year out, which was only amplified by Janice's testimony about the summer of 1980. They had all gone water skiing and had the best time, and she read the Bible with Colleen, and they'd go on shopping trips, and Colleen would go on jogs, and at night, she would lock herself in the bathroom. You know, she, she wasn't locked in there from the outside, she would lock herself in there. Janice also testified that Colleen talked about having Cameron's child, which Colleen denied, and that happened a lot, like I mentioned. Janice would say something, and Colleen would be like, yeah, that's simply not true. Unfortunately for McGuire, Pappendick had surprise evidence because I didn't know this, but the prosecution has to show the defense all of their evidence, but the defense doesn't have to show the prosecution all of their evidence. So he had surprise evidence, which were letters Colleen had written to Cameron professing her love, which I guess she forgot she did and didn't tell McGuire about. And I'm gonna read two quotes from two of these letters and there are more than just these two, but they're pretty bad. So just a heads up. One was, quote, "'Sometimes I feel that being your slave "'has made me more of a woman, "'but then there are t other times "'when I feel it has made me less of a woman. "'You know how to make me feel good about myself, "'and I love you so much for it. "'I only wish my dreams could be fulfilled with you "'because I feel strong love and need to be with you. I'll always serve you with singleness of heart. K. So that's the first one. And that's the less bad one. Here's the second one. You ask me to tell you how much I love you, but I haven't ever been able to tell you because I don't know the right words to describe how much I love you, but I seem to be falling deeper and deeper in love with you each passing day. And that was just a short snippet from a longer letter. So it was pretty damning evidence. And there were more, like I said. I don't know what to say about that. Like, yeah, uh, can't even. I can't even imagine because she didn't even know that. Right. So she forgot. It's like, so, like realizing that, and then yeah. I don't know. I, I can imagine that the whole case probably seems to feel like it's slipping away. Yeah. At that moment. Colleen said she didn't know why she wrote it, but also in the beginning he told her to tell him how much she loved him, and she was just trying to survive. But. Not only that, but Pappendick used the fact that Colleen called Cameron after her release and had conversations with him on the phone for several minutes. I think there were like a number of like seven minute phone calls or something. And she was like, who were you talking? He was like, who are you talking to? She's, she was like, probably Janice, but he kind of made it seem like she was talking to Cameron. Mm -hmm. So that was also not good. But clearly there was a lot more keeping Colleen than just physical restraint, but there was a big question mark over whether or not McGuire could use the argument that Colleen had been brainwashed due to what she had been told about the company. Legally, it would be extremely tough to argue that, and she didn't want to do anything that could potentially hurt her case. Luckily, though, she was able to get medical doctors and psychologists to back her up, and she saved it for last, which was good. 
Dr. Michael Vovakes determined that Colleen had scars on her wrists that were consistent with the use of cuffs and more on her right hand that were consistent with a person who was right-handed struggling while restrained. He also pointed out burn scars on her inner thighs and other marks on her bodies that were consistent with the abuse that she endured. She then had Dr. Christopher Hatcher explain coercion or brainwashing and how that very much was the case here. He talked about how brainwashing isn't when a person is just pressured to do something, but when their whole adult process, their values, their way of looking at the world is changed completely. He talked about how everything Cameron Hooker did would be the perfect storm to lead to complete control over a person. First, starting with sudden abduction, followed by isolation as soon as possible. Refusing to answer questions, making them extremely vulnerable by removing their clothes, humiliation. Second step is breaking someone with continued physical and sexual abuse. Third step, removing normal daylight patterns. Putting someone in a constantly lit or constantly dark environment is very disorienting. Fourth step is controlling urination, defecation, menstruation, Fifth step, controlling food and water. Sixth step, punishing for no rhyme or reason. Seventh step, requiring victim to constantly ask permission for anything. Eighth step is establishing a pattern of abuse. Ninth step is continued isolation, and he went on. Talking about how giving her little freedoms and taking them away was another form of control, threatening her family and threatening to sell her to a captive even worse than her current master. And he did all of these things. These are all things that he did. And then McGuire presented the court with an article found in Hooker's porn collection titled Brainwashing How to Fold, Spindle, and Mutilate the Human Mind in Five Easy Steps. What the? This is like a how-to? Yes. That he published. No, not that he published, but that just that he read or that he had in his collection to like use as a guide. Oh, so somebody else published this and was like, so it's good content to mm-hmm. put out there. Mm-hmm. And Dr. Hatcher pointed out that it's enormously time consuming to carry out a successful coercion. And to be successful, the person needs to allow their captive some degree of leniency and of freedom to then suddenly take it away, which he also did. Papendick had previously tried to say that Cameron couldn't have done this because he could barely read. But Dr. Hatcher refuted this by saying this person doesn't have to have comprehensive kind of knowledge. He just has to be a kind of hunter. He also pointed out that Colleen's love letters were also consistent with SM literature, meaning sadomasochistic literature. And it was common to have the captive echo the captor's belief systems. So he also refuted the love letters, which were was very good. This went on back and forth until finally, on October 18th, Cameron was going to testify. Buckle up. Because Wait, he hasn't been put on the stand this entire time? Nope. How? Because. I don't know. Let's continue. Yeah, so now it was Cameron's turn to talk and give his side of the story, which is a hoot and a holler. <laughs> Cameron had said that initially he had kidnapped Colleen. However... He hardly ever hung her up and had no interest in having sex with her. He said he spent several hours with her in the basement holding her hand because she had been on drugs and he was helping her detox. So she had him throw away the drugs in her purse. In his story, she was unrestrained and sick from detoxing. Okay, how did the scars happen? He also said, sometimes we'd hug. 
Um, oh my God. Mm-hmm. He said he was afraid to let her go, even though he wanted to, but he wasn't sure how. After the second week, she wasn't sick anymore and was kept in the box, but she slept a lot, so it wasn't a problem, and she was unrestrained and would be let out of the box for four to six hours at a time. What do you mean she was tired a lot? So she Does slept she... during the box time. Okay, but we let her out for four hours. No, like, don't think about that clearly meaning that she was in the box for 18 to 20 hours. Mm-hmm. Nobody sleeps that much. Yeah, it's a crock of shit. I just... That's why I'm reading it the way I am. Can he... Is he literate? Like, is he actually literate? Because this is such a stupid... He's pretty um, dumb, I think. Really? Or I don't know if he's like... I don't know. I I think it's because he's like handy. You know what I mean? So I don't know how dumb he is. But but they did... Like, part of the defense was that he's not very literate. You know? Like, he has trouble reading kind of thing. This is just insane. But like, I don't know. He pulled this off and was so horrific. Mm -hmm. But... He is putting forth such a clearly stupid sequence of events. Well, it's like, how do you explain seven years of captivity? It's not going to make sense. It's uh, That's very true. Yeah. After the second week, this is still his story, by the way. After the second week, she wasn't sick anymore. Oh, I, I already said this. He said they became very close and she asked him about his interests in bondage and she would do it for him. So I guess that's where the scars came from because they would do bondage, but it was because she wanted to. He also said that having her sign the slavery contract was Jan's idea, and once she did that, she was allowed upstairs every night and joined them at the dinner table. So they became like a big family. He talked about the regular trips they'd make once they moved into the trailer, and he also testified that he told her that he'd set her free. However, she said that if her freedoms would still continue, that she wanted to stay. And that's when he welcomed her into the family. Right, sure. Mm -hmm. He also promised her a baby, and she was a willing participant, and the slave collar was kind of like a wedding band. Oh my god. So that was like the general gist of his story. I don't know, that last detail is so... Well, because they they had a picture. They had a picture of Colleen in the slave collar, so they had to add it in there, you know? Yeah, sure. Yeah. This was obviously bullshit, but believe it or not, it did make people kind of believe his innocence. Really? Yeah. But McGuire had multiple pieces of evidence in his massive porn collection, including numerous comparisons between Hooker's crimes and the story of O, which was Hooker's favorite erotic film. And she talked about this a lot in her like closing speech and all throughout her testimony or testimony. I don't know, but it's basically like, he pretty much reenacted what he saw. Yeah, like it was pretty much the exact same thing. At least that's kind of what the book made it seem like. Like the story of O was exactly the same as his crimes to Colleen. Oh, okay, gotcha. So she's like, hey, uh, art imitating life, question mark? Like you did this, so that. But after everything was said, it was left up to the jury and they deliberated for days. In the news, people argued about the case and the men tended to lean in Hooker's favor, and the women generally were convinced that Hooker was guilty. But on the morning of October 31st, the third day of deliberations, the jury came back with the verdict of guilty on every charge. Praise the Lord. Yeah. And he was convicted on his favorite holiday, Halloween. Get fucked. Yep. You horrific, disgusting monster. Yeah. You deserve no joy for the rest of your life. Yeah. 
and how poetic mm-hmm. that you get convicted on your favorite holiday. Yeah. And the judge also wished the jury a happy Halloween after they, they gave their verdict. Um, I wonder if they planned that. <laughs> I, I doubt it. But, <laughs> Probably uh, not. But, that'd be kind know. of silly. But uh, he was sentenced to a maximum sentence of 104 years and was also fined $150,000. Wait, why was he fined? Who cares? I mean, who cares? <laughs> but I'm just, I guess I'm curious. I don't know. But he and was. Not like he's going to pay it, right? I think he did. I think he, he paid Colleen. But actually, recently, like in 2021, a change to a state law concerning elderly prisoners made Cameron Hooker eligible for early release, reducing his sentence to 74 years. And understandably, when Colleen received notice of this, she was devastated. In April of 2015, Hooker was allowed a parole hearing and his petition for parole was thankfully denied. And an early release date is unfortunately still a possibility so fingers crossed that never fucking happens because jesus christ i don't get that why so what was the new law like elderly prisoners get parole no matter what their crime is or i think he like it, it just makes him potentially eligible for parole it doesn't like say that it's necessarily going to happen but he can get parole i don't even like the possibility exactly existing. no of course so it's it's possible that he could be released early But the county sheriff, Dave Hencraft, did say if he is ever released back here, I know parole would keep very, very close tabs on him. And so would all law law enforcement agencies in the country, in the county, not the country. Okay, so there's a number of problems with this. (laughs) I don't care how close of an eye you keep on a person unless you literally have a live feed of where they are at all times. Mm Mm-hmm every single minute of the day right you are not keeping a close enough eye on this person yeah period i agree like he clearly has no regard for human life and Mm -hmm. only wants to bring suffering to these poor women Mm -hmm. and i don't know did he show any remorse no he completely denied it the entire trial yeah so it's not like he's gonna just be re you know he can go work at ralph's yeah no and cash people out with a smile on his face no, of course and be a productive not. citizen and like, actually what the fuck are we thinking right with and, this and when he was put into prison he did like make a statement to someone that he should have killed them both or something like that like he How showed no remorse kill you yeah like, like someone pull out a shank or something like jesus christ i don't know generally not for the death penalty but you know some cases really <laughs> just make you make you wonder <laughs> especially if you're gonna make that comment yeah like oh my god mm-hmm. but anyway after the trial janice hooker filed for divorce finally and became a much stronger independent woman and she goes to counseling and continued to be a mother to her two daughters so that's good Colleen remained close to her family and continued to work and reside in Riverside, and she is still religious and is determined to live a full and rich life despite what has happened to her. She said, I just decided that I'm going to do my best to put it behind me. I'm not going to let them keep me from doing what I want with my life. And California's Victim Witness Program awarded her with more than $20,000, and she got the $150,000 from Cameron Hooker. And having children was always a long-held desire of hers, and on April 23rd of 1987, she gave birth to her healthy baby girl. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. 
shoot i mean her her kids are older than us yeah yeah but uh but that's Five good 10 years right exactly wow. 30, 34 right Colleen, who is now 62, told newspapers that she still suffers from post-traumatic stress disorder and experiences residual physical pain and has had a hard time holding down a job in the aftermath. She has studied for an accountancy degree and has had a string of failed marriages as she struggled to cope with her past. But she said that your life is just in limbo when you're in captivity, and once you get that freedom back and you have that choice again, it's just like the gates open and you just have to run for it. I have to accept the fact that it happened because it did. I don't let it affect my life now because to me, it's over. Right. It's just tough. Like I, it's it's not like that, the, the happiest ending, but I feel like with something as traumatic as this, like how, how could it be, you know? Yeah. I think it's a win for her to be out and like living and she had a daughter and she's continuing to, you know, make moves and do her thing. And like, that's incredible, you yeah, know? It sounds like the best outcome yeah. that could have happened from this just abject horror. Right. And, you know, her attitude is the best that you can have. Right. That's what works for her. And right. she's, you know, just figuring it out one day at a time. That's all we're I doing. I mean, how can you not have PTSD from this? Oh my God. I mean, I couldn't even, I, I literally could not imagine. The part that I'm like fixating on right now is the fact that these violent, horrible people get possibility of parole and it's up to a parole board to decide whether they get let out. Yeah. I get that parole is kind of a mid-ground. You're not free. You have to go report to somebody. Mm, but it's yeah, like, but based on the other stories we've talked about. There's so many accounts of people getting out on parole and committing crimes. It's like, yeah. And keeping captives. J.C. Lee Dugard. Yeah. She was kept captive for years and had children in captivity by a man who was, was on, on parole. parole the entire time. Yeah. So, like, so. I get that the sheriff is saying, uh, we'll keep a close eye on him. Clearly, nobody can do that. Right. I, like, just, it's, I just hope it you doesn't know, happen. This is a great, those are words that mean nothing. Yeah. Well, Honestly. I'm just hoping for the best. Yeah. I'm glad that he was convicted on a day that he once held dear. Yeah. You know, screw that guy. Anyway, folks, Let's that and... is the ending of the part two of The Girl in the Box. Whew, we made it through. Yeah. Shall we talk about a good thing? Yeah, let's bring let's, it. Let's, let's do a, a palate cleanser, shall we? Yeah, you want to start? Maybe. Sure, yeah. My good thing is we went to a comedy show and usually I am terrified at the idea of the comic pointing us out and like calling us out and using us in part of their bit because that sounds horrifying as an introvert. But the comedian, I don't I don't remember his name, but Rick Ingram. Rick Ingram. So funny. He did a great job. He called us out and it was like very funny. Like it was very fun. Um and yeah. I had a very good time and it was a very good set. So I was surprised that I had oh, a good yeah. time during that one because like I don't know, I was honestly my heart was pounding because too. I think he only asked you one question, right? Yeah, I mean well, I don't even think he asked me a question. He asked you a question. But. Yeah, he so he started talking to me and I was like, Oh shit, I have to project confidence <laughs> in this moment. Right. Or else 
we're going to be shredded. Yes. I have to give answers that are true, but, and give him enough to go off of, yes. but doesn't leave much to, like, too much. You yeah. know what I mean? But you did great, and it was fun, and uh, I had a good time. Yeah, it was awesome. Anyway, what's your good thing? My good thing is that I went to go visit some family mm-hmm. in an undisclosed location <laughs> in the United States, yeah. and we had great food. Good. So my... So I went to visit my uncle, aunt, and their uh, two kids, my cousins. They're really cute. They're two and four. And um, they make everything from scratch. Oh, right. You mentioned. Yeah. So they're, they're very conscious about what they eat. And they, they have like a really nice like water filter. And they like everything's organic. We get in the vibe here. Yes. But their food was amazing. Yeah. You said they made like a whole pizza, a whole pizza from scratch. Yeah. I don't know if they made the dough from scratch. Kind of looked like it. Sounds amazing. But... It was all great. I mean, they didn't make the pepperoni, obviously, but it was all so good. I bet it was like the bougie pepperoni you get and like, you have to like cut it yourself, you know? Yeah, it was. (laughs) (laughs) Love that. But I mean, it was worth it. It was so worth it. Oh yeah. Amazing. Well, good. Anyway, we hope you guys have a very happy and safe Halloween. And if you would like to follow us on Instagram and keep up with all the pictures we post about all the stories we talk about, follow us at nottoday underscore podcast. If you or anyone you know has a story that you'd like to share with us, send it to nottoday underscore podcast. We have a TikTok that is not today podcast. We have a Twitter that is not today podcast, but the T on the end of podcast is a three. That makes sense. Because that makes sense. And just keep breathing yeah yeah